0: Hi again everybody, John Porteous of Lovell's Township Historical Society, and you're listening to the Backcast Podcast. Well, we've got another good one for you this week, everybody. Um, Richard Perry and I are going to sit down with Steve Syndick. Uh Steve Johnson had so much fun last time, he's going to stick around and uh, hang out with us as we record this one. So, uh, Regardless, uh, Steve is a retired fisheries biologist with the DNR, uh, many... <laughs> Many people up this way know Steve and have corresponded with him through his professional career and he's now uh, in his next chapter doing uh, habitat restoration and creation uh, in many of our river systems and uh, most notably on the North Branch. So I think you're going to enjoy this. Uh, We certainly had a good time recording it and uh, here we go. Hey everybody, this week Richard and I are joined by Steve Sendek, uh, our special guest and unsung hero of the Asable, and uh, Steve Johnson had so much fun on our last podcast that he's joining us for this one. So uh, we've got Richard, Steve, Steve, and John. Gentlemen, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good morning. It's going good. good.
1: We could start our own country
0: here. Exactly. The trout nation. Yeah, Steve, thank you very much for coming out today. We appreciate it. Um, what um, what we typically do is just uh, hand the mic to you and say, tell us about Steve. How'd you start? Where where did you come up and what landed you here? Oh, wow. That well, goes keep back it nice ways. and open. <laughs> that goes back ways. Um, I grew up in the
2: western UP, Iron River. Um, geez, my... My extended family up there were miners and loggers and farmers. Uh, immigrants came, you know, the turn of the century and homesteaded up there. So that's why I grew up hunting, fishing, trapping, <clears throat> and um, e- even in areas, you know, uh, we always focused around, you know, the farms where my grandparents homesteaded, things like that. And okay. we're always out in the woods playing, doing stuff like that.
0: That's excellent. That's excellent. Did you? So when you were hunting and fishing up there were you were you fishing with a fly rod were you spinning what was your what was your weapon or did you use them all well it started out when I was
2: really really young you know I I would say four or five years old my dad would carry me into beaver ponds on his shoulders and we'd dunk worms and catch brook trout and part of the big thing was is you know uh, we ate what we grew caught or shot up there and that's how we lived it was living off the land and I think back now, and it was really cool. Um, and I remember the, the trips my dad would take me There were very few beaver around back then. So all those little streams, whenever you got a beaver pond, you had really good brook trout. And they'd spend their time looking for these little places uh, where we had some water to sneak into. And you know, like I say, he'd carry me in on his shoulders and with a little Zebco 202 uh, reel and, and rod and just catch a bunch of fish to bring home for supper. And that's how it started. But it wasn't too long after that. I was probably like eight or nine years old. We'd see some of these ponds right at our our camp that we have there. And uh, in the spring with the mayfly hatches, these big brook trout would sit out there and roll in the beaver ponds. And we had a friend in town who had an old Army Navy store. He was a good friend of ours. And uh, he sold all kinds of hunting, fishing equipment. And I always thought about a fly rod. And he showed me and he set me up with an old St. Croix fiberglass seven weight there we go i still have it and i remember rigging it up and uh he gave a couple of uh, royal coachman flies to go with it with the Cortland line i still remember all this stuff it's really near and dear to me i remember that first trout It was a 12 inch brook trout and like that one uh, i'll take it to my grave with me the memories of how i caught that fish on that fly rod that's awesome and uh and that's how it started not that i've Solely gone to fly fishing. Yes, I do spend a lot of time fly fishing, but we do everything. I like fishing, period.
0: Right. Well, and, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, you're, um, you're pretty good at the hunting department as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, we
2: spent lots of time in the woods. I mean, that, that was our fun time. Uh, my dad was very strict with my brother and I. Like We couldn't go and hang around town. But to grab the 22 off the wall and take off behind the house there was no restrictions to that we go. could do that anytime and and so we just grew up you know like the the grouse season uh every chance we got out of school and stuff we'd have the shotgun run out behind the house and it was then grew were a, grouse run a high cycle well it wasn't anything to get five grouse in an evening of hunting oh wow And then deer season would come around. But back then in the the late 60s, uh, early 70s, deer up there were rather sparse. And I remember the group of us would get together at camp. If we had fresh snow, my brother and I were the beagles. We'd look for a deer track that day. And that's the deer we chased. And my dad and his buddies would set up on different runs what they knew the deer would go through and try and see if they
0: could see that deer that day.
2: It was just tons of fun doing that.
0: the Iron River area, that's that's really far into the western UP correct correct yeah yeah so you're i guess the the composition of the land there if you will is is going to be much different uh from ours here
2: yeah the streams up there um are big stone uh the, the Laurentian formation there uh, they're a lot more flashy, you get a rain, they come up, they freeze in the wintertime, but you still had some really good springs and some good trout water, the Iron River, the Brule River, South Branch Paint, uh, Cook's Run, all of those streams. And those are just the main main ones that everyone hits, but my dad knew all the little tributaries, you know, Golden Creek, Stump Creek, Silver Creek, Morrison Creek, Defiance Creek, all those places that we spent more time on. And I know lately, when we've been going back there, like with, with my boys now, um, a lot of those smaller trips, they don't get any pressure. Uh, sometimes we're the only ones in there that year oh, that's awesome. to fish them.
0: That's awesome. And it's
2: primarily brook trout fishing.
0: Yeah. Well, am I remembering the story correctly? That is it your son's fiance that uh, took a, a ginormous Brook trout or something? Yes, last summer. Got her a specification um, or a Shayna, she's she
2: is good at fishing. <laughs> and she is getting to be an expert at fly casting and stuff. And we took her up there. Uh, it was, uh, or Nick took her there last summer and floated her on some of those beaver ponds. And they had a fabulous afternoon fly fishing. And they caught probably a dozen fish over 14 inches and her largest one that day was seventeen inches. I think it was second in the state for the Master Angler program last year. Wow. That's a big brook trout. Big brook That's
0: trout. That's a trophy uh, in these waters and it, yes this area of the world anytime. That's awesome. Well, except for a coaster maybe, but Yeah, right. And <laughs> we're quite a ways from the coasters. Yeah, doing those. But
2: the, uh... it just goes to show, you know, if the if brook trout have a chance to live a while and aren't pounded too hard, they, they can grow up to nice size. And when I grew up, you know, uh, a lot of the fish we caught were, you know, seven, eight inches, mm-hmm. and that's, that's what we ate. And I remember a lot of the time, you know, if we got a 14, a 12 or 14-incher, that was a huge brook trout. Oh, yeah. And it's kind of common that today the same thing, Pretty much too. still is. Yes. That's
0: big fishy. Yeah. Yes. Awesome. Well, so given kind of an awesome upbringing and everything was that all motivation and uh spurring you to pursue your education and the career that you did
2: well not not necessarily i mean um we grew up in a, a labor type family you know you always worked there was always chores to do we as kids went out to the uncle's farms and helped them with haying or or picking potatoes all that kind of stuff So there was always work to do we you know it was You always did something you're expected to. So when I went to high school, um, you know, like my dad had worked in the mine, so my thing is I thought I was going to get into the trades, either welding or machining or something like that. So I took a vocational program in high school, basically. But I did take college prep. I don't know why, but I did. And I had an exceptional biology ecology teacher there um we got along tremendously his name was silvio Polich, and and uh he's the one who steered me and it was like in my senior year uh he asked me off the site he says what what's your plans i says i'll probably go get some uh internship or apprenticeship or something like that and look for work he says you ever thought about college because all through his classes whenever he needed something for biology like club moss or grouse feathers to do a uh, Grouse biology study or something, you say, Hey Steve, I need this tomorrow. Can you go out and get it? And he always counted on me to go and find this stuff. So, anyways, he asked me, He says, What, what do you plan on doing? He says, You ever thought about college? I said, well, Yeah, maybe. I don't know. And he says, You really should. And he says, You know, there's the DNR and all these different careers. And so I said, oh, I thought it'd maybe be cool as a game warden or something. He says, What about a fish biologist? He says, You really like fishing and stuff like that. I says, well, yeah. He says, I'll help you apply. So we went through all the papers. He, Because he was a graduate of the University of Michigan. And he was in his last years of his career getting ready to retire. So he helped me fill out all the papers and everything. And the only school I applied to was U of M, and I got accepted. That's <laughs> so awesome. It's just kind of, and that's what led me down this
0: path for, the, for my career. That's incredible. That's a big jump. Uh, from the UP down to Ann Arbor, is that um, being the only school you applied to just because that was going to offer you the best course of study?
2: Yeah, well, he went there, and I think that's why he Ah, was biased towards
0: it because he went to U of M.
2: And uh, I knew they had a, uh, you know, after I started looking into it, they had a really good natural resources curriculum there and things like that. And one of the, the main professors in fisheries management... Uh, was Carl Logler, and he went way back, you know, as a a fisheries professional throughout the world. He did a lot of consulting around the world, and he ended up being my faculty advisor. And also while I was there at school too, um, I worked, and I got a uh, part-time job with the DNR, and it was at the Institute for Fisheries Research. Hmm. And I did a lot of computer card key coding back then in the, the <laughs> mid 70s and things like that. But I, uh, I got to do you know, a lot of water analysis and things like that. So I got to know the DNR folks rather well in the state. And that just kind of helped me along, you know, to go here and there. And, and they liked what I did. You know, growing up in the UP, we, the number one thing you learned there was a work ethic. Yep. And that people noticed that, I guess.
0: Uh, I, that's a universal
1: that's yeah, a, for, sure. for I, sure I figured you were a Michigan Tech guy you know?
2: <laughs> well that was could have been for the technical part of it yeah mm-hmm. and I was that close but I don't regret it it was uh, you know I, I'm one of those fortunate ones who ended up having a career that was you know you could live your fun every day kind
1: of dovetailed right into your past and your future huh?
0: yes yes, that's uh, it's, it's interesting because that's kind of been a common refrain amongst a lot of our guests that they've, they've, their life has led them, you know, on a path that allows them to pursue a passion and, and have fun in their workspace rather than, you know, the drudgery of some.
2: <laughs> oh, I know. You know, I saw my, you know, my family, how they grew up, you know, working in the mine and stuff. It's like my grandpa. I never met him. He passed before I was born. But I heard the stories of him on the farm and stuff. And, you know, the farm wasn't enough to make a living. So we ended up getting a job in one of the mines there, you know, in the Depression era and things like that. And he would literally walk seven miles every day into town to work in the mine and then come back and do all the farm chores and everything. And then weekends, him and my dad, who was a young kid at the time, would cut firewood to sell in town and haul into town in and a sleigh and a horse team and all that. You know, and it's just... Um, it's good to be able to reflect and have roots connected to that type of a lifestyle. And then to bring a lot of those uh, beliefs and skills forward with you It's just,
1: it's good.
0: Yeah. No, I, I agree completely. There's a lot to be said for, you know, person's impact by the work ethic they employ. So so did
1: you, when you went to work for DNR, was that up here? I mean, were you in the Grayling area for most of your career?
0: Oh, at
2: first I was down in Ann Arbor uh, working part-time and then with my connections there, when I would go back for the summer to Iron River, they connected me with the uh, DNR District uh, 2 Fisheries People at Crystal Falls, which was only 15 miles away. So I had summer jobs with them and we did surveys and egg takes, musky egg takes, walleye egg takes. Uh, and also then I started uh, running a crew for stream habitat restoration. The first stream I worked on up there for habitat restoration was the middle branch of the Otanagan River. Over by Waters Meat. And It was a really, really How close top... is
0: that to Bonds Not too far. It's part of the Ontonagon system. Yeah, that's a beautiful piece of water. Yes. <laughs> yep. Got to see that recently. And like Gorgeous. north
2: of us, see we the streams that I grew up on ran into the the Brule Menominee system, the border along Michigan, Wisconsin. Okay. But you go a little bit north and you get into the Ontonagon system or the Sturgeon system where like the Jumbo River and all those that ran to the north up to Lake Superior. So we had the best of both worlds there in the western end of the U.P.
0: Oh yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's a beautiful part of the world. I yeah, there
2: were, there were just tons and tons of streams and, and streams that were just tucked way back in, you know, if you didn't know. And a lot of them we learned from, from trapping. Uh, we made a lot of money selling furs through the winter time. Mm-hmm. And beaver trapping was one of the prime uh, motivation things that we did. And so you learn a lot of these creeks and streams where the beaver were, and you found out where the trout were, and you found the ponds that you wanted to fish, and and that was all part of it.
0: Mm-hmm. That was our life was focused in the woods, roaming around. You know, we we heard Steve talk a little bit about beaver on our last episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the, yeah, uh...
1: up trapping too on the Misery River. Oh yes,
2: <laughs> yep. Yeah, the trapping back in those days is you had a a two-week beaver season. That was it. And it was typically mid-April. And when you got your license, you got either, at first it was six tags and then they really liberalized it. You got eight tags so you could only trap eight beaver. And that was the limit. Mm -hmm. And it's not that there were a lot around then, but there were a few spots. And if you found a beaver pond, you kept that secret because that was your honey hole for the spring trapping for you to go into.
0: Okay. Closely guarded secrets. But
2: it, the, the trapping took me to a lot of cool places, and I got to learn a lot of neat waters. And uh, and then when I started with the DNR, learning actual fish management. I mean, college taught you some things, but you really learned the trade working it. And one of my huge blessings was was having Carl Logler as my faculty advisor. You know, the the father of fisheries management. Okay. And then, but the connections I made with all the DNR staff back then in the 70s, and there were just some tremendous, powerful people in fisheries management back then. Uh, Someone who took me under their wing and mentored me, uh, Gary Schnicki. He's still around and out in Montana now, uh, tromping the streams around there in his 80s. Uh, Bill Buck, who was a field biologist here then. I see him frequently, and we still get out, and he's in his 90s. Oh, wow. A uh, couple of them have passed. Uh, one was Vern Fox, just a fabulous, he was our technician foreman. And uh, just a knowledgeable guy, just tremendous. Uh, cool, calm, and collected, and knowledgeable. Just a Bill Kent. Uh, and then some of the other unit managers in the state at that time that were just phenomenal, and like in warm water walleye management and stuff like that. Leo Rosinski and... Um, Bill Bullen, um, John Trimberger, uh, Ken Dodge. There's just some tremendous people back then who were very, very skillful in bringing Michigan's fisheries program to life.
0: It sounds like you came up through a <coughs> pretty special time slice. Um, I'm not sure is that, that you could replicate those conditions today. No, it was. There was... Um, back then, um, and it,
2: it's all... Prior to that, when Trout Unlimited had formed, there's, there's, there's a lot of interconnected efforts going on, both uh, agency-wise and private-wise. Like in the 50s, Trout Unlimited formed. And they formed because they weren't very happy with trout management at that time. You know, it was basically race fish at a hatchery, plant them in the stream, and have people come right behind the truck, fish them. Yep. And Trout Unlimited's philosophy, um, you know, Art Newman and, and all those guys wanted to get away from that. They wanted to get the true value of our resources and help self sustaining uh, fish stocks, trout stocks. And a lot of the DNR folks that were going then had that sole mind of you raise fish, plant them, and let them get fished. Um, With the public interest to get into wild stocks, they brought in Howard Tanner to lead the DNR then. And that changed the whole focus. He regrouped the DNR brought people in who actually got into fish management, managing habitat, um, getting uh, things fixed up so fish could reproduce naturally, getting the environment better, actually managing the resource to their potentials. And that's where a lot of my mentors came into that era shortly after that and were part of that effort. And yes, it was at a very special time in the DNR when there were a lot of cool things going on. And you know, not just inland, but the Great Lake salmon, uh, with to- Wayne Toady and uh, walleye management, um, getting a lot of the inland lake runs going with hatchery stocking, muskie management in the state. Uh, there was just so much going on at that time. It was just wow. Whatever you wanted to, if 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 you had the desire to learn
0: something, there was someone there to teach you it. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, it, in that vein. Talk to us a little bit about how, how trout habitat has <laughs> become a big part of your life, <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> or seemingly. Well, it was, it's kind of a gradual thing. I mean, it's
2: it, it, in, intuitive. When you fish a lot, you learn places where fish are and places where fish aren't. You know, I think of growing up, the Iron River was just across the road from us, from where we lived in the yep. UP as kids and that was our free time was marching up and down the iron river catching brook trout and there were places you went to fish to catch brook trout and there were places you just did not fish because there wasn't anything there and then you start thinking why is that and then you start seeing well here there's a tree there's a log there's a bush there's a gravel run there's riffles there's a big pool here you know for different seasons of the year And so it's just all those being exposed to those things your whole life, you kind of pay attention and you say, hey, now it's starting to click. What does what and what is when and how all this stuff blends together. And then in the fall when you're deer hunting, you cross these little streams and you see all of a sudden there wasn't anything in that creek and now it's full of brook trout spawning. You go, oh, now I see the reasons why. And you know all these little things start coming together. And then you throw a little formal theoretical education from the college and then it's brings it together even closer, but then it really comes together when you start working with people who've done it their whole career and were very good and serious about it and then they start, then the picture comes together. So um, one of the things I got big on from the early years was habitat management. In order to have good trout populations, they need to have good habitat. And it starts from spawning habitat where they've got good gravels where water percolates up through so the eggs can incubate, the fish hatch. You got little quiescent zones where you have organics where fit the hatchlings come out and they get in the organics and then they start feeding there and then they swim up when they're about an inch and they get into the shore grasses in the spring and you can see them there mm-hmm. uh, following each stream margin and, and like I say it goes from there and then you get the woody debris where you, they have ability to escape from predators your blue herons and kingfishers and mm-hmm. otters and mink and stuff like that. And then they're able to grow a little bigger and, and feed well on all the insects that are produced in the gravel riffles, and then they overwinter in some of the bigger pools where they don't have to expend energy. Right. Blah, blah, blah. It's all, you know, it's not one thing. It's all little bits and pieces. So then you finally catch on that, hey, for effective habitat, it's not just about fishing, but it's to give fish good places to live throughout their whole life. And it's from creating good spawning habitat, getting rid of the sands that cover the gravels, uh, creating places for the juvenile fish to survive and evade predation, and then creating good habitats, woody complexes, so adult fish can evade predation, but also so they have quiescent places that they can hide and just zip out and grab something to eat. It's all energetics at that point where they need to eat more than they expend.
0: Risk reward on the calorie, yeah.
2: Yep, and then they've got to have a good place in the end to go back and spawn and start the whole cycle over again. So it's uh, it's really a fascinating, cool thing, and it all started coming together. Some of the classes that I took in college uh, from Ann Arbor brought me to the Grayling area. I remember the first time I'd ever seen uh, a sign, the Asable River, was when I went to college and. 1974, driving over the Aisable River in Green. I thought, wow, that's pretty cool, that river. Not knowing that, you know, five years later, I'm going to be living there for, <laughs> for the rest of my career. That's but awesome. um, but it, and during college, we came up to do some bug sampling through our entomology classes and things like that in the ensemble. So it, it, it lit my candle nice. very early on about what a special
0: place this area is. It, it is amazing, we've said it with a number of our guests at a number of times, just how this little kind of out-of-the-way area has just been almost a forest Gump-like magnet for significant trout history things.
2: Yeah, it, a lot people, has happened here events, through time. The,
0: yeah, everything. It's just nuts.
2: And as far as trout management, the ensemble has been the focus forever. It's got, you know, like, uh, it's got one of the longest... Uh, data sets for trout population numbers since the 1950's when they they've invented electrofishing equipment here in Grayling to sample these waters. It's where it all started. A lot of things started here. Trout Unlimited uh, habitat work in its infancy back in the CCC days started here. They did a lot of uh, groundbreaking habitat uh, projects here to, to try and make the world for fish a little
0: better. It all started here. It's a very special place. It's kinda of cool, you know, it all goes back to the uh to the art thing. You know, it's kind of simple, but it it's universal. Take care of the fish and the fishing will take care of itself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's that first half of the equation that you've had a lot of impact in. <laughs>
2: well, yeah. Uh, there are a lot of ups and downs with fish populations. Uh, nature always throws curves in and things like that, or human interventions, things like that. But in all, nature's still pretty resilient, and she'll take care of things in the long run no matter what, but we need to help her along in the short run. That's the critical thing, and uh, there's things that we can do that really can help out even during the hard times. Well,
0: please, expand on that a little bit. Tell us some of the things that are Kind of this this might be a good opportunity to kind of shift into, you know, I guess we can turn it personal here to the North Branch, and that's going to be the focus of a lot of organizations. It sounds like over the next three to five years.
2: Yeah, um, I first started working here in June of 1979, and right away we got into stream shocking. Of course, it, the main focus was the Osage system, and we had. You know, probably a dozen or more index stations on the mainstream, the South Branch uh, and the North Branch that we monitored sometimes twice a year, but at least once a year, main, monitoring the trout population, and the status of doing actual population estimates. And at that time, the po- trout populations here were, were the best in the state. Uh, the North Branch at that time had one of the highest densities of trout numbers of any trout stream in Michigan. You know, it came close to like the little Manistee at Zimmies, but it's a much smaller stream. Or the other one that had a real high density, but it was a small stream, it was down in Rose City, uh, Houghton and Wilkins Creek tributary to the Rifle River. Hmm. But the Osable North Branch was it. That was the King of Kings. And right now it's not that way. Um I retired back in two thousand eleven in the fall and uh I got started into this habitat work and Since then we've seen a continued decline in trout numbers especially on the North Branch and right now it's very disturbing to me. Uh, Trout numbers are extremely low from what we're seeing. And We've been doing habitat work and I can say that that's probably not the reason why it's crashing as a lack of habitat but I'm sure the habitat we've been putting in has at least buffered the crash. If we weren't doing anything it would probably be way worse than it
0: is. You know, er- earlier today we were <clears throat> sitting around with a couple of guys having a chit-chat, and um, we were we were talking a little bit about water temperatures and the north being a little skinnier, probably a little more um, subject to, uh, you know, the power of the sun and the heating that way. Um, we're blessed in that the north has a boatload of springs and other cold water inserts, but it's still pretty skinny river and still runs kind of warm through the summer season. The uh, do you think that that we're seeing an impact on on that trout movement or population owing to that? You know, given that brook trout are a little more sensitive to temperatures than maybe browns or rainbows.
2: Well, it's very possible that that can be one of the factors. And I'm not saying that is There's something, one thing going on. It could be a well, combination I don't people of I ever find
0: factors. that silver bullet. Do you? Correct.
2: <laughs> it's but um, I look back through time in the, you know, the 40 years or so or more that I've been around here. And even back in the early years, we had hot summers and we had, Stream temperatures, especially on the North Branch, that got into the mid or high 70s during the days. Okay. But because of the groundwater inputs coming into the stream, it would drop down into the 60s, and it gave that thermal refuge to those fish. Trout are pretty tough critters for the most part, um, and they can handle some extreme temperatures as long as they get a break from it at night or something like there that. There you go. Um, and we've been monitoring temperatures in the river for it goes way back to then checking on things and things are yes there's hot periods and there's cold and yes the north branch is more susceptible because it is a wide shallow stream mm-hmm. but it also has a lot of good groundwater coming into it too oh, yeah. and even the mainstream got into the upper 70s occasionally in in the historic times um but from what I'm seeing, the data, it's a little bit scant right now. We don't have good yearly data coming out of the, the trout populations. But from what I'm seeing is I don't think we're seeing the problem of the decline as much in the mainstream or the south branch as we are seeing in the north branch. And that's what's concerning to me is why mm-hmm. there's something else going on that's not, oh, how do I say, like flood events or winter temperatures or summer temperatures and things. because all these streams are in the same region and they're affected by the same precipitation same levels particles. and same hot periods in the summer and things like that. And we're not seeing those declines. And to see the North Branch go from one of the highest trout densities to a relatively low trout population, that's, that's what's got me worried. And we need to get a concerted effort somehow to start looking at those variables that could have influence on it. And some of them have been looked at historically, like predation, for one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gail and Alexander uh, was the head of Trail Creek Re- or Hunt Creek Research Station for many, many years, and they did population studies him and Doc Shedder way back when. Uh, so we could do something. I don't see you know numbers exceptionally high on the North Branch compared to the others, uh, mainstream and South Branch that would indicate that there's something different predation-wise going on in the North Branch. Uh, water temperatures, you know, we have high spikes in both. Um, we did Mason Griffith and uh, US Geological Survey and Angus de Al-Sable and North Ranch Area Foundation all banded together and did a, a, a new technology type uh, water quality sampling. We're looking for organic compounds, mm-hmm. historic pesticides and things like that a few years ago. And they did find Chemicals, I think it was like 20 some, 25 or 28, different chemicals that are very toxic to fish. Granted, they were at low levels at that time, I think it was in May or June when they sampled for one month with this new technology, but um, they're there. They're called legacy compounds, organics like DDT, PCBs, things like that, organic compounds. Right. So, um, they individually they were low levels and they didn't seem like they would have an impact on trout populations but we don't know the other 11 months of the year what those levels were this was a snapshot at one month
1: what's the source on those things are they just leaching out of septic systems or yeah well
2: um all of the above Mm -hmm. um the other thing that we have is golf courses that use a lot of herbicides and pesticides and many of those chemicals are used in that that uh, grounds treatment, things like that, management. Um, We have a a military airfield or bombing range on the one side of it that has the potential. Um, They've looked at it in the past, and they really didn't see anything significant coming in. Mm -hmm. But that was a number of years ago. It was probably 20, 25 years ago when they did that study.
1: It could be they didn't want to see anything. Too. Right,
2: and the other thing that uh, it's possible is there's a oil and gas antrum formation in the headwaters that they do a lot of uh, uh, gas wells and oil wells. And recently they've been, they're older fields, and they've been fracking the, the Sorry to go formations back in that second round. To, to make them more productive. And I know there was a, a situation not too many years ago in Pennsylvania in the same oil f- gas fields where they fracked, and it caused methane to bubble up through the fractured gases into the stream, and it chased the trout out. So there's a lot of potential things, and, uh, and I hope we can get the horsepower behind it to start investigating these things to start looking at. As a, as a fish biologist, you know we, we're not trained in a lot of those type of things, but there are a lot of people out there who are, who are good in the field. And I think we got to start blending those interests together to start looking at these things. Yeah.
1: Just kind of empirically, you know, the uh, two or three years ago, the fishing fell off really bad. And, and I understand that that was attributed to an avoidance event. So it wasn't a kill, but it was an avoidance. Somebody chased the fish out. And am I understanding that right? Is that,
2: well, that's one One theory, one yeah. theory, right? yeah. But, you know,
1: again, just from observation, the fishing is better the last couple of years. But still, it's not uh, it's not tremendous. And
2: know. we did see uh, with our with the crews on the river this summer doing the habitat work. We did see a few more fish, and also we had the good fortune to partner with Grand Valley State University, where Dr. Mark Luttonton came up and did some. The last couple of years been working on juvenile. Mm. There's a problem, and and again, it, it's what's causing the problem, or at what life stage of the fish does it affect the fish? Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to mm. learn these pieces of the puzzle to put them together to see where it happens and then you can kind of tailor where you need to investigate the potential causes of that failure at that certain life cycle, if that's what's occurring here. So we're getting some cool juvenile information and comparing it to the past and we just finished up the sampling and um, I just got a little glance at the outcome, the data, and looking, but we had uh, relatively low numbers of juvenile production. Survival is not that good. Uh, We lost a lot of them during the summer, which isn't unusual for fish, though. That's when the most mortality happens at them. And the low numbers of juvenile fish isn't unusual because the volunteer groups are also doing red surveys in the fall, documenting how many fish are spawning and where they're fishing, or where they're spawning and how many are out there. And those numbers have been kind of on the decline, or at least in certain areas, mm-hmm. they've been significantly lower. So that would, in, in essence, produce fewer juvenile fish. And then, so those are all the little pieces of the puzzle we need to start putting together, looking at different life stages and getting very serious about what's happening to the fish and when, and also where in the river, it seems like the problem of lower uh, numbers of trout are in the upper reaches of the river, and as you come down, there's more trout present. At least that's what the anglers are finding and, and talking yeah, about. Sort of
1: yeah, so i it the shop, yeah.
0: Oh yeah, I, I think we're all hearing the same general thing, and the further downstream we go, obviously the deeper the uh, water depth and the more accommodating holds, if you will, um, than up in our little skinny water uh, where there aren't as many.
2: Well, historically, though, that skinny water was the place for them. It's like, where did these guys go? <laughs> right, and, and that's what's so frightening to me is that it, it's happened over a period of time, but it really came to head more recently. And so was there an event of something that happened? Um, like the, one of the theories, there was a, a cold winter, anchor ice formed, uh, high flows in the spring, destroyed the the reproduction cycle at the early life stages and and killed the fish when they just hatched out and got washed them down But the same winter happens on the mainstream Mm -hmm. And we're doing habitat work there and also the trout unlimited's done some shocking surveys there on some of these new areas For example, like above grayling Um, It was known for very few trout historically because of dams which the dnr got open. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have fish passage through mm-hmm. them now, salling and the mill pond and grailing. We've done a lot of habitat work there to make it better. And those numbers at, at the one uh, site that we shot prior to starting the habitat work, we got a population estimate there. And about four years later, we came back uh, having the work done. And a few years after that, we re it. And the trout numbers went up. Instead of losing like we are on the North Branch, they actually came up 46% by number. But the really cool thing was is the biomass, the actual pounds per acre of trout in the water came up 118%. That's
0: that's a good thing to kind of talk to our listeners about a little bit because, you know, are we missing a couple of age groups? And are we just now seeing the, the compounded impact of that prior to the event here? Um, you know reflective of the decline Or we now you're getting
2: to to where i would like to see things go again um we've missed the the last population estimate done on the north branch was in 2018 and it's now 2021 and i don't know when the next one's going to happen again so we don't know just that critical information you're talking about we don't have it yeah it's missing and we need to get it to see again to try and figure out what life stage or was it a one-year event or a two-year or three-year you know are there's year class missing out of the trail population yeah. we don't have
0: that information right now we
2: got to get it somehow
0: so and and again for the listeners it's not all doom and gloom there there are promising things happening steve's involved and in, both steves i think are going to be involved in this You know, collaboration between uh, some of the angling groups, some of the conservation groups, uh, the state, um, to try to get everybody talking and communicating and understanding just these challenges. Do you think, and again, forward-looking and you know, no constraints, but do you think that the stage may be set then? You know, as, as budget dollars become tighter, that Maybe with guidance from a state agency, could you see private entities undertaking some of the things that were previously undertaken by the state agencies?
2: Oh, certainly. You know, I, I, And I, still
0: being validated from a data perspective.
2: Yes, the most power that we could have in management of the river is, is combining efforts from the public sector to the private sector. And if we can all get on the same page and start working together and collecting this data... Um, teasing it apart. And like I say, bringing expertises in, in chemistry and mm-hmm. uh, hydrology and, and all these uh, studies together, the exotics, <laughs> is where we're going to really get a picture. You know, as a fish biologist, we look at some fundamental things that directly affect fish. But we don't really get into water chemistry as far as pollutants and things like that. That's mm-hmm. a whole other science. or you know, the, you know the environment, things like that. Those are all other sciences. But I'm 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 hoping that this resiliency program that the DNR is establishing and and starting off right now is going to be the way to get there. Okay. And um, it
0: just seems like it. it, It's the way it should get there. Collectively is starting to open a little bit towards more of a collaborative. Yes. It's um.
2: (laughs) We've got to bring all the disciplines together. Like a fish biologist isn't going to solve the problem. Right. And a chemist isn't going to solve the problem. But put the two together, now you're starting to get somewhere in understanding how this creature ticks out there, how it actually functions. And the one big thing that we have to understand is it's not a snapshot. This is an evolving environment. It's constantly changing. It always has. I mean, there wasn't even a river here 13,000 years ago when the glaciers were here. This is a new system in the, in the scheme of geologic time. Mm-hmm. And things always a change. And the one thing my mentors taught me is adaptive management. And you continually look for changes in whatever you're studying or managing. And you keep adjusting your management strategies to go with those changes. It's not like you figure out one thing and then you've learned it for the rest of your life. Uh -uh. Uh-uh. The world does not work that way. It's a
1: journey, not a destination.
2: Correct. And it's always going to change. And what we learned today may have nothing to do with the problems we're going to face tomorrow. Well, that's
0: why you've got to be flexible in your five-year planning or whatever and be adaptive.
2: Adaptive and- management. Yeah. Everyone has to remember that. Be
1: agile and flexible. Seems like there's a lot of people working to address these issues in one way or another, you know, private and public. But it's what seems to be lacking, maybe I'm wrong here, is one central place to bring all this into one coherent or collaborative program to, uh, to address the whole thing from the ground up, uh, you know, across the entire spectrum to, uh, you know, investigate all the aft faucets and figure out what the hell is actually going on.
0: Well, and hopefully the resiliency effort is gonna work to that, that goal. Like that has the potential to do it. Right? Yep, if it's well, put together correctly and the right program.
2: people. It's a collaborative program. Oh, yeah. yeah. like DNR is initiating
1: to, to, to it. The stewards of the resources will be the guys to lead that program. Yes, yep.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But it's uh, it's a collaboration between stakeholders, which are primarily angling groups and property owner groups on the river. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michigan State University, uh, Dr. Mark Luttonton's also from Grand Valley State University Valley. is going to be on mm-hmm. the work group, and then uh, Eagle. Folks from right, the Eagle folks. Energy, Great Lakes, and Environment.
0: Didn't Lake Superior have a? Did they have a seat at that table too? With the? Uh, I don't it, recall that. I'm I don't not sure. I know that they're one of the groups involved in.
2: Well, this, they've they they've got uh, the Mayflies or Students whatever. going into the system and, and looking at different things for some of their senior research projects and that. Um, so that, so they are down here too. Which is good. Yeah. Well, it's wonderful. And then, uh, of course, you know, then the DNR has to be the main player in it, too. As they're the ones who are actually responsible for management of fish and game populations in the state. That's their task.
1: Well, they are the stewards. Yeah.
2: Yes. Nice. So we have a lot of hope that, you know, the Things are going to start clicking. Of course, I'm impatient. I want it now.
0: Oh, well, we're humans. We want everything right now, when we want it, where we want it, now well, we want it. And I'll admit, I'm <laughs> selfish. I want a good place to fish. Well, yeah, to be sure, to be sure. The um, well, so again, maybe looking forward to a year or two. And you're you've been doing a lot of. Uh, work down above
2: and below Dam 4. Um, we've had a project going since 2012, every summer on the North Branch. And we've had projects every summer till this year going on the mainstream also. Um, we're gonna look at doing things on the East Branch. Uh, I've been able to work with the various angler groups. We, we've all been in this together. Uh, Mason Griffith, Founders Chapter of Trout Unlimited, Anglers, of the Asobel, uh, Property Owners Associations, and there's been numerous other Trout Unlimited chapters across the state and oh, yeah. and, and the Midwest that have been contributing dollars to this habitat restoration effort. And, and the North Branch Foundation and right and the North Ranch Area Foundation. Yes, like I say, there's been a lot of people and individuals contributing dollars and volunteer hours to for mapping and you know a lot of these side tasks that need to be accomplished to get this work done so it's it's it's, i've just been at awe at the horsepower and the people that are here that are willing to do something both physically or through their treasury or whatever to make sure this this special place in the world is taken care of i'm i'm totally blown away and impressed by it.
0: it it continues to be a very special place and while maybe limping along in our fish counts, as we are at the moment, uh, I'm, we're all hopeful for better days ahead. We'll get there. We'll get there. And yes, I'm confident. Yeah. So, and, and frankly, it's a lot of that's going to be with the two Steves here and their influence and, you know, among a, a cast of thousands of others. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, but together, I think we're going to get it nailed. Right I'm, I, I feel good, you know, I, like I say, I'm
2: concerned right now with what we're seeing, but I feel very good about what's happening behind the scenes to address the, the concern, and that's good. Good, Good's going to come out of this.
0: The, the future is not dark, it is bright. <laughs> Correct.: yeah. yeah, We're at a low point in the
2: population, but uh, there's enough people who care that uh, it'll get fixed.
0: Yeah. Excellent. Guys, I think um, Steve, that's awesome. Great job today. Much appreciated. Well, cool. Thanks for the opportunity.
2: This is oh man, this, this is, is great. It,
0: and and this is this is what's fun. We always get to to talk to cool people that are, you know, enjoy what they do and make an impact in what they do. So thank you. Much You're welcome.
1: Much. Well, as always, we appreciate your participation. You've been a great supporter of the uh, LTS over the years. LTHS over the years, <laughs> get those initials straight. Know your acronyms. And, uh, we do appreciate it, you've been a good friend. Yeah,
2: well, it's, it's worth helping out organizations that have impact because there's, like I say, there's so many diverse interests here that are concerned about the river in their own way and they all add benefits to it in, in some form or fashion, either with on the ground work uh, volunteer hours boots in the water or financial contributions or education is in your part you know it's just tremendous how you get the word out then and to the people and things like that oh, or, sure. or the history uh, one thing we don't want to do is repeat our past mistakes
0: well and as a historical society it's, you know I think a lot of times we, we we're pegged only with looking back and reviewing history but You know, now we're in a a situation where we can actually make history. (laughs) That's cool. (laughs) And push it forward. So that's that's pretty cool, too. Good. Excellent. Gentlemen, great job. Thanks. Hope everybody has a great afternoon. Listeners, thank you. We will talk to you soon. Well, that was good fun. I hope you guys had as much fun with that as we did. Uh, Steve's obviously a terrific guy. And... uh, while the river is not fishing as well as uh, it has 30 years ago, it is uh, continuing to improve. And uh, thanks to efforts of uh, Steve and other like-minded individuals, it'll fish better again next year. So uh, that's it for this week. Join us next week. We'll have another swell guest for you. I think we're going to, I think we'll be talking to Rob Smith. Uh, Glenn Everly and I will do that one. and. Uh, That'll be a fun one too. So until next time, mind your back cast.